0: Hey there. I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of Tea for c If you've ever thought about going into the family business, or if you're interested in architecture and design of buildings and furniture, then you are Definitely going to want to listen to the insights and expertise of my next guest, who is a founding partner of the internationally acclaimed architectural firm, Jacobson Architecture, which... He founded with his dad, Hugh Newell Jacobson. But before I let Simon Jacobson take the mic and educate us all, I want to make sure that you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that we blast out bright and early Monday mornings to give junkies the inside scoop on the five episodes we're going to be dropping that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website. That's time, the number four, coffee.org and sign up. It's right there on the homepage. Now grab your mug and take a chug of a delicious caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And I am really thrilled to introduce my next guest because even though we are in very different industries with very different backstories, we do have one thing in common, which I will share later in this episode. Simon Jacobson is a founding partner of Jacobson Architecture and was recently inducted into the Architectural Digest magazine's 100 Hall of Fame. And the firm that Simon founded, along with his dad, has received over 140 awards in design, architecture, and interiors. Among their projects and renovations around the world, the Smithsonian Arts and Industry Museum, Georgetown University Student Housing, the University of Maryland's Alumni Center, the West Expansion and Infill Project at the U.S. Capitol here in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, Le Hotel Talleyrand in Paris. That was a renovation. And of course, extraordinary homes, which they've built all over the world for some very lucky people. It really is extraordinary. Simon, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you sufficiently caffeinated and ready to go? I M, I'm shaking. Oh, no. i <laughs> no, it's we, a good we, thing. It's, it's something induced <laughs> In anticipation, right? <laughs> yes. So, Simon, your firm designs iconic buildings. Anyone who has seen a Jacobson home or building should be able to recognize it immediately. Can you please describe for Java junkies who are obviously listening and don't have the benefit right now of the visuals, what that architecture looks like?
1: Well, uh, thanks for having me, Andrea. The, our process in how we design buildings is what uh, differentiates us perhaps from other design firms, is that when we design a building, we are also charged with designing the interiors as well. And that often means the furniture and selecting art. And uh, we're involved in the, this very immersive experience of all of the owners' objects and lifestyle. And so when we design the building, we're actually designed the furniture layout first and then we build the buildings around them. And that's why they have this unique exterior presence about them of being as some say, pavilion style. They are each room has its own building, if you can imagine that. The kitchen is not sharing some room with the dining room. So if you can imagine that, you have a series of many little pavilions that makes up almost like a village rather than a monoblock building.
0: I've read that your homes and buildings want to emphasize clean lines and pristine walls. What does that mean?
1: Well, if you think about our type of client and our ideal client, there are people with serious art collections. So many of our spaces on the inside look like they could be an art gallery themselves. But we don't employ many of the bits and pieces that other people put in their work, such as crown molding and base molding and gutters on our building. Our buildings are designed with a very high level of technology where they don't leak And we use these advanced building systems so we don't have to use those other devices that really clutter up the visuals of the spaces and the forms of the
0: buildings themselves. So when you say you're employing technologies, how long have these technologies been around and what are they?
1: Well, sometimes there are technologies that have evolved. Sometimes there are new chemical engineering products that have just come onto the market and that we've tested. And really what they are, I mean, the most important thing in any building is waterproofing and then energy consumption and making sure that the sun doesn't ruin the interior, which is very, very possible if you're not careful. There's so many really great products out there that are being developed every single day, many of them green in nature, many of them not green in nature. Either you select them based on the merits of uh, what the project is. But it's changing the way that buildings are being designed and built. Uh, it used to be that brick was, you know, the most sustainable building material. Who would have thought that it's glass now? Yeah. And how has it become glass? Glass has 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 become such an amazing uh, technology. One, it's incredibly strong. If this was in the 1950s and said, we're going to build glass railings to prevent people from falling over the edge and we're going to make them out of glass, they would have put you in jail. Uh, (laughs) Now, now, we now build roofs and walls out of this incredible material. And we've, we've learned so much about glass, about how it works and how it, gravity affects it, temperature affects it. And science has really played a huge part in heading off the problems that used to be there. But uh, there's many more amazing things other than glass, but it's how they all come together in a piece of architecture that just blows my mind every time I think about it.
0: So looking at some of the Jacobson homes, and I Highly recommend that Java junkies go onto your website or just Google some of the amazing homes in particular that you have built around the world to get a sense of how unique they are. And I know Simon, when I say I know, I have a sense that the process of developing the buildings that you now see in these pictures is something that just takes years. Can you walk us through a bit of the process of what is actually involved in citing and building and developing these magnificent structures?
1: Sure. The most amazing thing about this profession, and I encourage everybody to become an architect or a designer, the thing to remember is that it all starts with a phone call or an email. And you may get that email on your phone while you're driving or your tween meetings and you pick up the call and there is somebody there on the other line that you've never met. And they want you to design their house, their lifestyle, how they're going, how they're going to retire and how they're going to entertain their children on holidays. And there really is no greater honor in my opinion than being asked that and the rush is really quite something you have to remember that we're almost as Philip Johnson would say we're making heavy clothing we're like a very serious tailor where we have to meet with the owners of this future building and design it exactly around them everything from their shoes to do they wear French cuffs or you know which which affects what kind of closet they have you know how many dogs and what happens when they come home from the supermarket? Where are they putting their stuff? Does Mrs. Client, is she going to put her purse down and is she, she going to want to charge her phone right away? Or is there some other way we're going to charge that phone while she's still carrying groceries? Everything is thought about that way. Are they right-handed or are they left-handed? Does Mrs. Orr put makeup on at a desk or does she do it in the car? Things like that, those are lifestyles that have to be designed that really stay with a person until their
0: death. And so the houses are truly custom in that way. I have actually read something Simon that I believe you were quoted saying and it was that people look good in our buildings. I have never heard a building described as if it were an accessory or a couture item of clothing, but that is actually the way that you were just talking about it a moment ago. Exactly. You know, spaces are designed for not only,
1: you know, Thanksgiving and holidays, but they're also designed for entertaining. And when the owner walks down the stairs and has a glass of champagne in her hand, we take into account who's going to be looking at her and how and what's going to be in the background. And it is very much like that. And then you combine that with our science approach to how we light rooms and spaces. we light them like candlelight rather than just lighting things and we light objects specifically rather than general lighting and then those lights are able to as the sun goes down, those lights will dim as well. it's a it, you just have this feeling of timelessness when you're in a
0: well-planned space. There is another quote that I read that you gave about how. Architecture and design is something that is a slow process whose results are seldom noticed. It has been said that good detailing should never show the agony it took to produce it. Do you really mean agony? Yes, I do. I'm not the person
1: that said that. It was Hugh Newell Jacobs, my father. And he is absolutely right. And that is very much what we do day to day. To design a building where everything is hidden and there's no fluff, and how it turns a corner with no corner boards or you know, base molding, or uh, it takes an incredible amount of effort in the studio here to design it. Given that, that that's an unintuitive thing to do anyway, the builders that build these houses are very talented, but their, their knee jerk reaction is to want to build it the way that the house that they grew up in. And then we come along with all of these sheets of drawings and our Gucci shoes. And, <laughs> and, you know, we look like the IRS getting out on a job site. And we, uh, you know, we have to roll out the drawings and explain, now, this is how this goes like that. And this is, this is, it's going to look like this. We show them photographs of where we've done it before and they go, oh, I see. And yeah, you have to have that attention to detail if you're going to do critical work. Otherwise,
0: it's just the stuff you see on the
1: side of the road.
0: Yeah. What do you think, Simon, makes a really good architect? Do you have to be good at drawing And by that, I mean, you know, what we would call art class.
1: No, I think we should dispel the myth right here that you don't have to be good at drawing or be good at mathematics. You have to have energy of vision. You have to be thoroughly pissed off at ugly things. You have to see things that you don't like and feel free to shout at it like an old man in front of the TV. (laughs) And I was a person that... Annoyed all of my friends when I was a young man, and they'd invite me to a party, and I immediately show up and, and dim the lights and move the furniture around. I <laughs> I would not help it, and you know they're "You're such a jerk, Simon." I said, "Yeah, but you should go to jail for having that that chair there." And and I still do it. I still do it, and people warn me when I come over, like Simon, we just like the lights the way they are. And I'm like, okay, I'm so <laughs> But I think person really has to not accept the status quo. 90% of the world's worst buildings were designed by 100% of the world's worst architects and designers. And it takes just as much effort, time, and money to design a piece of caca as it does to design a beautiful, meaningful structure that is going to inspire people. So you have to be passionate about wanting things to look a certain way. My personal residence is not really something... I wish for my clients and I don't often take potential clients there because it's so stark and it looks like where Dr. Evil lives but you know you have to be careful about showing people that because you'll
0: typecast yourself like Lassie and you But don't what does to- that mean it looks like where Dr. Evil lives what what is that supposed to look like
1: My house is all white there should be a bald cat running through there any moment and uh, you know but that's the way i want to live and that's the way i want my family to live and and even my my children's friends come over and they say well when is your furniture getting delivered <laughs> every house we do is very sparse and formal and in its gallery-like interiors with great art and everything. But there's a tremendous amount of hidden storage behind secret walls. I mean, it's grotesque because if we don't provide that for them, they're going to leave it out on the floor. As Hugh Jacobson likes to say, if you put your shoes
0: away under the bed, I failed. Mm, Yeah. Because he wants there to be a place for everything, every part of your life. Exactly. And how many projects are your architects juggling at any given time? Well, each architect carries
1: three projects in different stages. And the different stages are, you know, one may be a schematic design for a house, and there's some schematic development involved in that. And schematic means just a series of a series of lines and shapes and, and there's not a lot of uh, meat to it. And then the other projects he may have is one is finishing up and or she has a project that's on hold or is going through some kind of legal review or something like that. So we carry between, depending on
0: our workload, it's as, as few as five and maybe as 25 to 30. Oh my gosh. I know, Simon, we touched on this in the Espresso Shots episode, which will be airing at a different time from this. So if you could please share with Java junkies who want to break into the architecture and design world without any experience, how can they get their foot in the door? Well, that's the hypocrisy of the
1: profession of architecture, because when students get out of school, they don't have many experience. They've been taught to think a, a certain way from very good schools to maybe not very good schools. And there isn't a lot of broad openings for people without experience in the business. So it's important And many firms like ours try to really bring them in and use them at the skills that they have, that they've been taught in school. The last thing we want to do is have somebody move to Washington, D.C. from Kansas City, and they're going to be filing and taking out the trash. I mean, we just that is just a waste of talent. So we really try to emphasize their skills in rendering the way they've been taught in school to do these, using this amazing software to make these photorealistic, projections of our building that we can then show, you know, city council members or private clients for a, a real working job. And that is a really great way to bring somebody in because they have to read architectural drawings and work with the project captains and project architects, and they get a lot of experience. And then they really see how the building comes alive by their own hand. I would also say that having a a good amount of energy and being that person that really wants to put your foot in the door, so it doesn't slam on your face, and always let principals know you're there and you're that person's always standing in front of them who's going to, you know, just just be seen. And you're not that person that's hidden away in a 75 man office in the back.
0: Yeah. So look for ways to make yourself useful.
1: Yeah. And. One of the most important things we receive, just like many architecture firms, we get incredible resumes from all over the world. We probably get about 7,000 a year. They come in through email for the most part, and some of the biggest mistakes that I have seen, say they're applying to Frank Lloyd Wright's office, right? And they say, to whom it may concern, well, there's your first problem right there. Why don't you say, dear Mr. Wright? architects and designers are people who really have a a huge self-interest and are often very proud of their accomplishments. And if a person is going to be applying to their firm, it's so easy for them to just research from that architect or designer's website their accomplishments and talk about them. And you don't even have to be telling the truth. You're just trying to get in the door. And you could say things like, dear Mr. Wright, I admired your work ever since I was a baby in in the house that you did in Chicago. I grew up across that house and you had Tea with my mother. That establishes a personal context with the person that you're looking to get a job with. But putting it to whom it may concern or
0: dear hiring manager, they won't even open it. I guarantee it. Oh my goodness. Well, I hope Java junkies are paying attention because that is some fantastic advice to help personalize and customize the way you do your homes, Simon, the letters that they're sending you. Simon, I want to flash back for a moment to when you were an undergrad at Bradford College. You were a liberal arts major, and you and I spoke before we started this recording, and you were telling me some things about Bradford and about your undergrad experience. Could you share that with Java junkies? Sure. I,
1: I went to Bradford College, which was a liberal arts school north of Boston on the New Hampshire border. It was a school that and lent a great deal of assistance to people with dyslexia, which I certainly was. And I went to a boarding school prior to that, which uh, specialized in people with learning challenges like myself. My father is a hugely celebrated dyslexic architect, and we've often spoke and agreed that he didn't have dyslexia. We'd probably be some of the most boring designers the world has ever seen. <laughs> and when we examine the causes of that or the root of where that comes from, it's because people with learning challenges often have to be unconventional in how they approach and how they survive school. And this is extremely handy when it comes to a, to the profession of architecture, because you have to be unconventional almost all the time to get things done. So well, I was in Bradford, and I just felt I had learned the tools that these special schools had given me, including the lab school in Washington, D.C., where I went for nine years, that I had enough trickery up my sleeve to go to architecture school. And I was right. And they threw me out the first year I was there because I missed one-tenth of a point and I got myself back in. I stupidly applied to a school where you required a 4.0 to stay in. But anyway, I stayed Oh, my in. gosh. Yeah. What do you mean I need a 4.0? Uh, anyway, I got, you know, I got myself back in with some extra credit work. But we had to do all these unconventional things to get us through it. And People with learning challenges such as dyslexia are people that are well versed in that. And architecture is is a really good profession for people with those challenges because really quite simply they're very clear objectives and deadlines that are set that are understandable and are very long due dates with lots of help. And some of the greatest architects that we know have had these learning challenges. Before 1960, if you had dyslexia or a learning challenge, they just thought you were stupid and they locked you up. That was the case with my father and his grandfather and his father, but they knew that they were smart and they knew that they could do things. And they were all very successful in their careers,
0: but they had to just jump through hoops. So speaking of that older generation, and I alluded to this in my introduction to you, Simon, that we, although we are in very different industries with different backstories, have one thing in common, and that is that we both went into the family business.
1: (laughs) We did. i I, uh, Andrea, I remember watching you on CNN, I think, when you first started out. And I was a huge fan of your father. And I, I saw you at the State Department. And I go, I know that's Ted's daughter.
0: Yep. yep. Well, that wasn't when I was just starting out. Actually, I had been in local radio and also in local television before I got to CNN. But for those Java junkies who may not know, my father is a very famous journalist whose name is Ted Koppel. And it was something that I really was not comfortable talking about while I was a journalist. And I'm interested for you, Simon, what it was like. Life and what it is like being in the same profession with a very, very famous dad.
1: Yeah, and uh, and I scratch my head even today. But what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Who do you think you are? You know, <laughs> the hardest thing starting out, and I'm sure you encountered this too, were some detractors. You know, they would ask you like, oh, "Do you really think you can do that?" You know, that was never the the issue. The issue was a shared DNA and love of what that profession was. I have two other brothers and I'm much younger than them. Clearly, I was a mistake. And so my father felt, as did my mother, they felt that I was being neglected. So my father took me everywhere as a young kid. And I was always kicking around construction sites and getting on airplanes with him and looking at a, a dirt hole <laughs> you know, somewhere that's frozen with snow on it and watching him point at it. And you know, that's how he made a living. Well, you know, it, it it was there in me as well when it came time to figure out what do I really know about? What is second nature to me? And you know, the most important thing was one, not listening to what other people said. First, you stick your toe in the water and okay, no shark bit it off. Then let's go. And it has been interesting. It hasn't hurt me at all. In fact, I'm sitting in this amazing company and we really haven't missed a step, and it's because of that relationship with my father and, and the things he did for me and the things I did for him as his uh, son and, and business partner. But it is an amazing ride. When Hugh and I have lunch together, which is at least three times a week, we toast each other. and Oh, um, that's beautiful. We, this is just fantastic because you know we're not you know we're father and son but we're you know we're not best friends we're not one of those relationships we're absolutely terrified of each other and but we love each other and we understand each other he knows that I'm gonna I'm gonna take care of him and he's gonna take care of me and that's all there needs to be Hugh likes to say to people he said my library is full filled with the tragedy of father and son relationships that failed and ended
0: in heartbreak. And this is not one of them. Oh, that is beautiful. That really is. Well, let me just say this as one child who followed her parent into the family business and was in it for 21 years, I know that you have a lot of grit and I know you must have an immense amount of talent. And I just want others who may be thinking about going into the family business, whatever it is, just to be aware that it isn't easy. In fact, I think it's more difficult when you choose that route, especially when you have a famous parent as we both do. Yeah. Well said. So, Simon, I know you've got a new book that is coming out by Rizzoli called Jacobson Architecture, 12 Houses that is coming out in 2020. Is there anything in particular that you would like Java Junkies to know about the book?
1: Well, I went up to uh, meet with Rizzoli. They didn't call me to say, hey, why don't you uh, do a book? You know, I had to approach them. And again, as I'm in the Uber headed down Madison Avenue to this famous publishing house I' like Simon they're gonna throw you out of there in five minutes they're gonna see this stuff and they're gonna just look at you as a retread and I really felt that but I said I have to try I have to try and I went in there and I met with the editor who's just the nicest person I've ever met <laughs> you know we sat down at this great eames table and you know I laid out the work for him and within 45 minutes we had a deal and that is one of the greatest honors I think I've had to date, other than my father approaching me and saying, I want to disband my company for which I am internationally known and start a new one with you. So this book is going to highlight and spotlight our work and careers together. I've worked for my father since I was 13 years old. I mean, my brothers came home from college and high school and in the holidays, and they didn't have to go to work. I had to go to work for some reason at his office. And that's just how that relationship was formed. But this book is, Really highlights our partnership from two thousand and seven. I guess some of the work is going to be in there from two thousand and nineteen so anyway it's just a it's just a great honor and you know as we were talking before about one's self esteem and questioning you know who you are, and then going in and just asking somebody and giving them sufficient evidence of why they should listen to you often yields the most incredible results
0: yes, yes. Simon, I have two final questions for you, one of which is a question that I try to ask all my guests, and that is to share a time in your professional life when you struggled, whatever the reason being, and how you managed to persevere and come through the other side.
1: Well, uh, one part would be the mathematics required in graduate school in a school that required a 4.0 trigonometry and calculus, advanced ge- uh, geometry, and um, algebra. These are all mathematics I never had. <laughs> so I'd, I had a great deal of uh, memorization to do, and I got by with a C-, and I was very grateful for the generosity of the professor. But at that point, I'd come all this way, and I'm going to blow it and not have a degree you know, and all those detractors were going to be right. Well, they were wrong. And <laughs> they were wrong by C And that was tough. And I really didn't want to go back and have to repeat any of that. But there are challenges in anybody's career. And I have met some of our clients who are really true captains of industry, and they didn't get there because they gave up. They had been knocked down, sued, run over, shot. Who knows? I mean, they've, they've done it all. But they all got themselves up and brushed themselves off. And you can see it. You see the bite marks on these people. And it's you, know, you can read about them because they're somebodies. And you just can't believe, one, you've got to work for them. And they are who they are. And, and they got through that. You persist. You simply must persist. And people, they say sort of casually, hey, Simon, how are you? And I say, I persist. And I mean it and they go, ha, 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 whatever. But I'm, I actually do mean it. And, and then the next
0: day, the sun comes out and never look back. Just never look back. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Final question. If you could go back to Bradford or to another college and do it all over again, Simon, but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? <laughs> well, I think everybody has <laughs> to themselves, you know, if I could
1: go back to college, I think there are a couple things I could could have said and done that would really make me more popular with girls. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there were so many people I admired in school simply because of their charisma and their confidence and they didn't have any baggage. You know, I was 18, 19, 20. I was like a not fully formed chicken. And You know, I I was a young man and I I just wish that I was more careful in my personal relationships with people because, you know, the people you meet in school and the people you meet when you're younger, they're the same people you're really going to know for many, many, many years. And just um, don't take personal relationships for granted. Really nourish them and uh, let people know how you feel about them. I think that that is also important in the world of business and design is being emotionally accessible being empathetic and really caring when you're talking to the person across the table from you. And because you can't design someone's life if you're not good at that.
0: Mm, I love that. I would just add, I think that's that's just a wonderful way to live your life in general. I think being a caring, empathetic person is makes the world a better place. I really do. Yeah, I wish we had more people like them in Washington. Well Yeah, that's a whole nother conversation. Simon, I just want to say you and your father have made this world a much more attractive place as a result of the incredible work that you're doing. And we look forward to the Jacobson Architecture 12 Houses book that's coming out in 2020 by Rizzoli. I want to thank you sincerely for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Java Junkie community. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.